0: Take your Bibles and let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 16, the final chapter of 1 Corinthians. We're going to look at the first four verses this morning and then the final 19 verses next week. Because the final 19 verses really is kind of like the close of the letter. It's sort of Paul will announce his travel plans, he'll come up with some final words to say, and then he has his farewell. So we'll we'll conclude, Lord willing, uh, 1 Corinthians next week. And then in two weeks, we'll start the book of Galatians. So 1 Corinthians chapter 16, the first four verses, Paul writes, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also. On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. And when I come, whomever you approve by your letters, I will send to bear your gift to Jerusalem. But if it is fitting that I go also, they will go with me. There you go. That's it. (laughs) You're like, what are you going to talk about? Well, that's why you've got that... Whenever you see a handout, and I have the word excursus on there, it means I'm going to go off on a different topic and talk a lot about that to fill time until we get to the actual verses. Now, it's not a different topic. Um, No, as you can see here, looking at this, the topic is the collection, right? That's how Paul begins that section, now concerning the collection. And just a recap of where we are in 1 Corinthians... Of course, we're in the second half of the book, which began in chapter 7 and goes through really this, this passage right here, chapter 16, verse 4. And in this part of the, the letter, Paul is addressing issues that the Corinthians presumably had written to him, asking the apostle to address certain things. So you've seen this language before now concerning, now concerning. You see it in chapter 7, verse 1, chapter 8, verse 1, chapter 12, verse 1, now concerning spiritual gifts, now concerning things offered to idols, now concerning uh, marriage and widows and so on and so forth. So Paul is just going off and checking off the list of their questions and addressing those issues. There's some other issues in here as well. Obviously, the resurrection was a big one. Uh, It doesn't begin with those words now concerning, but you can kind of see they had some questions on it. Uh, chapter 15, verse 12. Uh, Some were preaching that um, even though Christ is raised from the dead, there's no resurrection of the dead. And some were wondering if there is a resurrection from the dead, verse 35, what kind of bodies do they have? So again, Paul is addressing these issues that the Corinthian church had. And it's interesting that, you know, it seems like, well, this church has a lot of issues. And that's a good thing because then we get to have instruction on all of these issues really all in one letter right so that's kind of the fun part about this is you can you can read through this and it comes there's a lot of good practical a lot of good theological truth here that we can glean from these verses and from these uh, chapters that apply to our own Christian lives too because The church back then is a lot like the church is today, or vice versa. The church today is a lot like the church was back then. People want to say, oh, I wish we can go back to the time of the apostles. I mean, are you kidding? A, not only did you not have indoor plumbing, (laughs) okay, but they had just as many problems as we do today. I mean, this church is rife with problems. They had divisions. They had sin in the church. They had weak leadership. They had uh, schisms, all kinds of problems. And you see these problems pop up in church, throughout church history and in the church and the world today. Uh, so it's not as if those days were somehow better than these days. We may have different problems in, in our own historical context, but we still have problems that need addressing. And, and the Bible speaks to these problems just as well as it did to those problems nearly 2,000 years ago. Now I did want to use this um, topic to sort of branch off. Like I said, when you see the word excursus, I'm going to go on a little trip now. Okay, we're going to talk about giving uh, because this passage talks about giving, and it's the it's the one passage that I don't know. I don't know. I can't speak for most pastors. I could just speak for myself. I don't enjoy talking about giving. I would imagine other pastors don't enjoy talking about giving. Some pastors may enjoy talking about giving because they probably talk about giving all the time. You know, put your hand on your wallet and the other hand on your television and and as the Lord leaves you will you will give to our to our ministry so we can build our golden cathedral or what have you. But the top of of giving is uncomfortable I think from both perspectives, not only from my perspective because I have to talk about giving to you all, but then from your perspective, because in, in, the, in the average mind of the churchgoer, it's like, oh great, here we are, we're going to be guilted into giving more, that we're not giving enough, uh, this is just a scam, what have you, but so, so let's just talk a little bit about tithing and giving. Um, Turning your Bibles, we're going to turn to a few passages, I know I get some comments every now and then. it's like, why don't you just stay in one passage? It's like, well, I'm showing you the whole counsel of God. (laughs) Psalm 24. Psalm 24. And yes, we are going to be looking at a few other passages outside of 1 Corinthians 16. I hope we're okay with that. (laughs) Psalm 24. Because the first thing we need to understand when it comes to tithing and giving is that... Properly speaking, what do we own? Zero, right? We own nothing. Now, legally speaking, in our culture, the way we have set it up, yeah, we own things. We have property titles. We have titles for our for our land, titles for our car. Uh, if you bought an object, you may have, still hold the receipt to it to prove that you bought it. Um, you may put your name on a label and stick it on things saying this is property of so-and-so, but when it comes to theologically speaking, we own nothing. Who owns all of it? God owns all of it, right? Psalm 24, verse 1. The earth is the Lord's in all its fullness, the world and those who dwell therein, for He has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. The Earth and everything in it, all of its inhabitants, all that dwell therein, are the lord 's, and they are his by virtue of creation that 's probably the, the the telltale mark of ownership when you create something right now, the thing is, well, I create a lot of things, you know I make things, so I could say they 're mine, yeah, but where did you get the stuff okay? You know, that's the, the old joke about the atheists is, hey, we've discovered how to make life. And it's like, okay, well, let's, let's go ahead and let's, you know, God's like, okay, let's, let's have a little life-making contest. So the atheists are like, okay, let's go. And then God says, wait a second, get your own dirt. <laughs> In other words, God not only gives us everything, he gives us the materials. So God made everything out of nothing. And by virtue of that, he is the owner of everything. We don't properly own anything. God owns everything. Psalm 24, 1. Then you can flip over to Psalm 50. Psalm 50, verse 12. This is a psalm that talks about how God wants His people to worship Him properly. And you might think... At least maybe an Old Testament Israelite might think that I'm offering all of these food offerings, all of these animals to God as if maybe God is hungry. So I'm kind of feeding him. And in Psalm 50, verse 12, God says, If I were hungry, I would not tell you. In other words, that's a hypothetical. Okay, God is not hungry. But he's like, even if I were hungry, I'm not going to tell you. Why? Because the world is mine in all its fullness. I think later on in this psalm, it talks about how he is the one who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Um, in other words, he's the greatest rancher, the, great, the, the greatest cattle farmer in the universe. Why? Because it's all his. God owns everything. You can flip back to Job 41. That's before the book of Psalms, and it's near the end of the book of Job. If you know the structure of the book of Job, in Psalm, or Job 41, this is at the end. Um, you've had, I believe you get like 35, 36 chapters of Job going back and forth with his three friends, and then finally the fourth, the youngest, speaks up, and he speaks up for like two or three chapters. And then once that's finally done... Then God enters the picture, and then God testifies to Job, and in Psalm, or i keep saying Psalm—and in Job forty-one eleven, Job speaking to, or God, speaking to Job, says, "Who has preceded me that I should pay him?" In other words, God doesn't—he's not indebted to us. There's nothing we can do to put God in our debt. Why? Because no one comes before God. God makes everything. Everything under heaven is mine. No one can repay him. He he repays no one, I should say. and, And everything is his. God owns everything. So then what does that make us then? Well, it makes us stewards. It makes us caretakers, if you will. A steward is one who is entrusted by a master to oversee the master's affairs, oversee the master's estate to take care of the things of the master so that the master doesn't have to worry about them. That's in a human way of speaking it. But we are stewards of all that is God's. In fact, when God made Adam and he put him in the garden, what was Adam's job? His job was to tend and to keep or guard the garden. This is God's garden and Adam was placed in it To be his representative, to guard and watch over the garden. In fact, when Israel was given the promised land, this was the land that, I mean, again, God owns everything. And he says, I will give this land to you, Israel, and you will keep and guard it. Almost, in a sense, like Eden. In fact, Israel in a lot of ways is kind of like Eden. When you hear the descriptions of Israel from the Old Testament uh, Israelites, when they go in and scout out the land, they say it is indeed a a rich land. It is flowing with milk and honey and all sorts of wonderful things there. And and God gives this land to the Israelites and says, okay, the land is yours. As long as you obey my law, right? I give you the law, and as long as you obey the law, you will be able to stay in the land. If you break my covenant, I will kick you out of the land. This is, you know, God owns the land. He can give it to them, and he can take it away from them. So that you have that as well. Now, in the Old Testament, when God set up the Mosaic economy, he established a tithe. He established a tithe that the people were to give back a portion of what God had blessed them back to God, back to the work of, of God in the sense there of supporting the temple and so on and so forth. Now we're going to look at a few texts that talk about the tithe. The first mention of it is well, it's not the first mention of it, it's the first mention of it in the Mosaic context is Leviticus 27. The concept of the tithe goes, it predates the Mosaic economy. In fact, you have a case in Genesis 14, after Abraham had successfully uh, rescued his nephew Lot from uh, these four kings who have these names I cannot pronounce. <laughs> in, in Genesis 13, there was there's like a battle between two groups of of confederacies, a a group of five kings and a group of four kings, and one group lost, and the group that lost, that was where Lot was, and so Lot was captured, so Abraham hears about this, and he gathers a few hundred of his men, and he rescues Lot and, and, and defeats the army of these kings, and then when he returns, this mysterious figure named Melchizedek comes out, and Abraham gives him a a tithe of what he had of of the spoils and then Melchizedek blesses him now the author of Hebrews will will make a lot out of that and it's not in the context of this lesson I'm just saying this because the, the idea of a tithe predates the Mosaic economy but in the in the context of the law of Moses in Leviticus 27 starting in verse 30 have here, uh, and all the tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or of the fruit of the tree, is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. If a man wants at all to redeem any of his tithes, he shall add one-fifth to it. And concerning the tithe of the herd or of the flock or of whatever passes under the rod, the tenth one shall be holy to the Lord. He shall not inquire whether it is good or bad, nor shall he exchange it. And if he exchanges it at all, then both it and the one exchanged for it shall be holy. It shall not be redeemed. So here you have a command by God to the people that whatever the produce of the land is, they are to give a tenth of it. Same thing with their flock. They are to count every tenth animal in their herd. And every tenth animal in their herd belonged to the Lord. And the reason that, you know, it's, it's like he says, everything that passes under the rod. In other words, you're not, to, you're not to go up to your herd and say, okay, I have 100 cattle. All right, where are my 10 sickliest cattle? Okay, I'm going to take those 10. Those are going to be the Lord's. No, you just have your cattle pass under the rod. Every 10th one, okay, that's the Lord's. 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, that's the Lord's. 1, 2, you know, that's, that's how it works. These are given as a tithe, as a tenth, to the Lord. It is holy to the Lord. In a way, this is a reminder. It's like, look, everything I have given you, everything with which I have blessed you is mine. I'm asking that you give me a portion of it back. Not because I need it, not because I want it, but because to remind you that everything that I have given you is mine. Now flip over to Deuteronomy chapter 14. There is some talk about the tithe in chapter 12, but it's more of where to bring the tithe. But in chapter 14, starting in verse 22, you have here, "...you shall truly tithe all the increase of your grain that the field produces year by year." And you shall eat before the Lord your God in the place where he chooses to make his name abide, the tithe of your grain and your new wine and your oil, of the firstborn of your herds and your flocks, that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. But if the journey is too long for you so that you are not able to carry the tithe, or if the place where the Lord your God chooses to put his name is too far from you when the Lord your God has blessed you, then you shall exchange it for money Take the money in your hand and go to the place which the Lord your God chooses and you shall spend that money for whatever your heart desires, for oxen or sheep, for wine or similar drink, for whatever your heart desires, you shall eat there before the Lord your God and you shall rejoice in your household, you and your household. You shall not forsake the Levite who is within your gates for he has no part nor inheritance with you. At the end of every third year you shall bring out the tithe of your produce of that year and store it up within your gates. And the Levite, because he has no portion nor inheritance with you, and the stranger and the fatherless and the widow who are within your gates may come and eat and be satisfied that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hand which you do. So here again is another <coughs> instruction for the tithes. And, and it has some added verbiage in there to suggest that wherever the Lord will establish for his, his, his where his name will dwell which will eventually be Jerusalem if, it, if the journey is too far because the Israelites are required to go on pilgrimage three times a year if the journey was too far and you couldn't bring a lot of cattle with you or whatever or all this grain with you God is giving stipulations Okay, you can trade it in for cash bring the cash and then when you get to the place where my name will abide, then you can buy whatever and then offer that to the Lord. Now there's a little bit of debate, depending on who you, who you read on this, uh, which commentator you read, uh, on how to interpret the text. Because some will say that the, the instructions in Leviticus 27 and what you see here in Deuteronomy 14 are talking about two different tithes that the people were to give. Some will say that it's, it's talking about the same tithe, so whether it's two or one, that's it's beyond. That's not the point. But the point is that the people were commanded to give a tenth, and then in addition to that, you have this third-year tithe that was for the poor. So every third year, you were to c- gather a tithe, a separate tithe, as you if you will, to to give for the poor. And 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 these there were two main purposes for again for these tithes. The first one was a practical purpose. And it was to support the work of the Levites, to support the work of the priests, and to support the maintenance of either the tabernacle or the temple. And the reason being was because who did not get an inheritance in the land? The Levites. They did not have an inheritance in the land. The Lord was their inheritance, right? And in fact, they were sort of, in a, if you want to be specific, they were the tithe of the people to God. Instead of every firstborn that came out of the womb of every person in Jerusalem, God said, Give me the Levites. They will be my portion. So they serve the Lord. They don't have an inheritance in the land as the other tribes do. So their, their income, if you will, comes from the tithes of the people. The people give these tithes and they support their work. And then the Levites themselves are to tithe and to help the, support the priests and their work as well. But then again, there's a theological purpose behind all that. And again, is that what we have is from the Lord. This is all God's anyway. And that we are only stewards of God's rich blessings upon us. Now, if you were to ask me, this is my opinion. Okay. So, step back. My opinion. I believe that the tithe expired with the Mosaic Law. Jesus says in the Gospels, I have come to fulfill the law, not to abolish it. So the tithe is part of the Mosaic Law. As such, the tithe, I believe, expires with the Mosaic Law. Not that giving is optional. But some, I believe, look at the tithe rather legalistically. Okay, R.C. Sproul is actually in this camp. He, he is very, or was, I should say, <laughs> he was very, very adamant that we should all tithe. And, and, and if you didn't tithe, you were withholding, you were robbing from God, if you will. Um, here's, here's my take. Again, this is my opinion. I believe some look at the tithe too legalistically, as if only 10% is what's required, Okay, if, if, I, if I give my 10%, then I've checked that box, and I'm done. I don't need to give anything more to God, because I've given my 10%. That's the Pharisees' way, right? That's exactly what the Pharisees were doing, and that's what Jesus calls them on. It's like, oh, you guys tithe. You guys tithe like nobody's business. You tithe even down to the small, you know, garden herbs. You know, I've got a leaf of mint here, okay, I've measured one-tenth of it, I'm going to slice it off, and that's God's portion, now the rest is mine, they're very legalistic about this, so it's like, okay, if you only give 8%, you're bad, 10%, but what, what about 11%, well, I'm only required to give 10%, what about 12%, no, no, only required to give 10 what about 7 no, that's not enough, you got to give 10 See where I'm going with this? And then, and then in our day and age, what is it, 10% of what? The gross? The net? You know, it's like, you know, it's like well, okay, no, you've got you to gotta give the first portion to God, so it's got to be off the gross. It's like, okay, so now when you start establishing these rules, then you start looking at other people who don't do what you do, and what happens? Well, you're not as holy as I am, because I give 10%. I give 10% off the gross, and I give it first, you know, to God. I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm just saying I there's no New Testament commandment that says to tithe. There are New Testament commandments that say to give and to give, if you want to be technical, to give sacrificially. To give sacrificially. In the New Testament, giving is much more an act of love and devotion than of legalistically giving 10%. Flip over now, please, to 2 Corinthians. This is this is your Second Corinthians. Since we're going to skip it when we're when we're done with First Corinthians, you're going to get a little dose of Second Corinthians this morning. Second Corinthians, chapter eight. Now I'm going to read an extended passage here. It's really going to be chapters eight and nine. So buckle in. All right, Paul starts in chapter eight, verse one. Moreover, brethren we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. So that's northern Greece. In the, you know, it's most the Really, it's mostly the part that would be like on the European mainland before you get into the peninsula of, of the Greek islands there. Uh, that in great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. So here Paul is... is is boasting about the churches in Macedonia, how they were under trial, how they were in poverty, yet they gave greatly to the effort that Paul is going to talk about here. For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing, imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. Paul's going to be talking about a, a collection he is gathering for the saints in Jerusalem because they're undergoing severe persecution. So he's making a collection for them. Uh, verse 5, And not only as we had hoped, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. So we urge Titus that as he had begun so we would also, he would also complete this grace in you as well. Now he's talking to the Corinthians. But as you abound in everything, the, the Corinthian church was very wealthy, the Corinthian church was very gifted um, and very well, well off in, in material means. But as you abound in everything in faith and speech and knowledge and all diligence and in your love for us, see that you also abound in this grace also. I speak not by commandment, but I am testing the sincerity of your love. Now maybe Paul is laying a guilt trip. who knows? <laughs> Um, love by the diligence of others. Verse 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. And in this I give advice. It is to your advantage not only to be doing what you began and were desiring to do a year ago, but now you also must complete the doing of it. So he had talked about this before and he's kind of stirring them up. It's like, don't Go lax on this. You had started well. Don't finish weak. Um, that as there was readiness to desire it, so that you uh, so that there also may be a completion out of what you have. Verse twelve. For if there is first a willing mind, it is accepted according to what one has, not according to what he does not have. So again, giving is. We'll see this in a moment. Giving is based on your means, on what you have. He's not asking them for what you don't have, only what you have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened. See, he said, look, I don't want you guys to be burdened so that other saints can be eased, but by an equality that now at this time your abundance may supply their lack. So here he's talking about how, look, right now, you are being blessed by God and the saints in Jerusalem are severely afflicted. So, you have been, in a sense, blessed so that you could be a blessing to others. Okay, so, middle of verse 14, that their abundance may also supply your lack, that there may be equality. In other words, a spiritual act of giving. As it is written, he who gathered much had nothing left over and he who gathered little had no lack. That's That's a reference to the Old Testament and how when they went out to gather the manna or the quail or whatever, um, you had people that were able to gather a lot and they had enough, and you had people who were only able to gather a little bit and they had enough. The point there being no one had lack. Verse 16 But thanks be to God who puts the same earnest care for you into the heart of Titus. For he not only accepted the exhortation, but being more diligent, he went to you of his own accord. And we have sent with him the brother whose praise is in the gospel throughout all the churches, and not only that, but who was also chosen by the churches to travel with us with this gift, which is administered by us to the glory of the Lord himself and to show your ready mind, avoiding this, that anyone should blame us in this lavish gift which is administered by us, providing honorable things, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. And we have sent with them our brother, whom we have often proved diligent in many things, but now much more diligent because of the great confidence which we have in you. If anyone inquires about Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker concerning you. Or if our brethren are inquired about, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. Therefore, show them... Uh, show to them and before the churches the proof of your love and of our boasting on your behalf. So Paul's here just talking about, look, I'm sending Titus and I'm sending two other people. He doesn't name them, but he, he commends them. And he's like, look, these are faithful brothers. They are coming to, bring, to get the collection. I, I trust them with my life. The Lord has trusted them. You also should trust them. And so on and so forth. Now, verse uh, chapter 9. Now concerning the ministering to the saints, it is superfluous for me to write to you, for I know your willingness about which I boast of you to the Macedonians, that Achaia was ready a year ago, and your zeal has stirred up the majority. So Paul's talking them up a little bit here. It's like, look, I've been talking about you guys to other people. Yet yeah, I've sent the brethren, lest our boasting of you, of you should be in vain in this respect, that as I said, you may be ready. Lest, if some Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to mention you, should be ashamed of this, confident boasting. Therefore, I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren to go to you ahead of time and prepare your generous gift beforehand, which you had previously promised, that it may be ready as a matter of generosity and not as a grudging obligation. For I say this, but I say this, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound towards you, that you always, having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. As it is written, he has dispersed abroad, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. I can go on, I'll stop there, because I look at the clock, I see the clock. This passage is probably the most detailed passage on New Testament giving in the New Testament, as I, you know, redundantly say that, redundantly. Um, But what he talks about here is how giving is first an act of devotion. Notice how he says in verse 5 of chapter 8, talking about the Macedonians, and not only as we had hoped, but they first gave of themselves to the Lord, so The the Macedonians realized, look, we are in the Lord's hands. Everything that the Lord has given us is from his hand. We are but just giving back to the Lord what he has already given us. They understood this. And Paul is impressing this upon the Corinthian church. He also focuses on on the work of Christ. You see this in verses 8 and 9 of chapter 8. He says, this is not a commandment to you. But I'm testing sincerity of your love and diligence for others. How do you best show your love for one another? Well, you show that by meeting the needs of another out of your own resources. That's one really good practical way to show your love for another. It's not just simply cutting a check. all right? I mean, that's easy. You know, it, but it, it's the idea of, look, you have a need. I want to meet that need. And how does, he, how does he demonstrate Well, look at what the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was rich, right? He was, he, was, he was in the glories of heaven above. He gave that up. He gave that up. He set that aside to come down and become poor, to become a servant. So though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, that through his poverty we might become rich. And then at the end of the passage I read there in chapter 9, verses 6 and 8, he he urges them, look, don't give grudgingly. Don't give as if this is some kind of burden. But give as as God has purposed in your heart to give. Give as God has moved in your heart to give. Not grudgingly or of necessity. He says that in verse 7. God loves a cheerful giver. And I don't mean like when you... (laughs) put the check in the plate as it's going by you hi (laughs) it's not that it's the idea it's like look I am giving to the work of the Lord I am I have I have been blessed with much I've been or I've been blessed with whatever the Lord has blessed us with and you're saying I'm giving this portion back to God for his purposes so that's the excursus (laughs) now (laughs) to the passage It's a good thing it's only four verses long, right? (laughs) So that's the idea. At least that's how I understand it. I mean, there might be people who will disagree with me on this. Um, Let me put it this way. Let me say one last thing on the tithe. I think it's a good starting point. (laughs) All right? I mean, if you're you're looking at what should I give to the Lord, I think 10% is a good starting point. But I don't want to say, okay, you have to give 10%. Because there's some people who, if, you, if they were to give 10% of what they have, they would be severely burdened by it. So I'm not laying that down as a law because we are not Old Testament Israel. Old Testament Israel was required to tithe to the Lord either two or three times depending on how you interpret it and then you've got that third year tithe there for the poor. But God does want us Cheerfully to give of what we have. And we're going to look at it here how the giving to the church is not just so that we feel good about giving, it's it's so that we can help those in the church locally, more broadly, and so on and so forth, and for the work of the ministry. So, verse one, Paul begins here again, now concerning which indicates a change of subject, and he's and the subject here is the collection for the saints. I won't turn to these passages, but you can jot them down if you want. Paul talks about how he is gathering a collection for the saints in Jerusalem. He talks about this in Acts chapter 11. He he talks about this in Romans 15 as he talks about his plans to go visit Rome. He says, I want to come visit you, but I'm, I'm obligated right now. I have to go to Jerusalem first. Why? Because I've got all this money with me. I need to bring Back to the saints in Jerusalem. Once I'm done with that, then I hope to come to you. He talks about it in Galatians chapter two, verse ten. This collection for the saints, and that word, their collection, is the word logeia. It means money, typically money gathered for relief of the poor. Now, a couple of things stand out when you look at this: the collection for the saints. Uh, The first thing that stands out is it was a collection. For the saints, okay. I know. I know. Again, I feel like I'm stating the obvious here, but it's a collection for the saints. First and foremost, church. The church should be about should be a community. I should say that loves and supports one another. Again, within the local church, as there is need, and then also in the broader church community as well, between churches. And and the second thing I want you to notice: this is something that all the churches do. Right? That's what Paul there says. "Is I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also. So this is not something that some churches should do. It's not something that only the wealthy churches should do. It is something that all the churches should do. All the churches should be about giving for the, for the relief of the saints, for the work of the ministry, and so on and so forth. And again, this is reflective of what Christ gave to us, and it's a way to show our love, right? We looked at this in John chapter 13. Uh, How how will the world know that we are his disciples? By our love for one another. And again, giving to the needs of others in the community, giving to the needs of the other in our own community here, is a very practical way to show our love for one another. And, And I have to say, I mean, The two and a half years I've been here, you guys are wonderful about doing it. And again, it's not just about cutting a check. It's about your presence, too. I mean, um, I I remember when we first moved here. I mean, 17 or 18 of you were there at the parsonage to unload our truck and to put our house together. I've seen people giving food to the poor, bringing food to people who, who are shut in or whatever. I've seen people gathering around others when they're, when they're sick or when they're, when they're uh, mourning or whatever. We are very good at doing that in a community. Secondly, verse 2, giving according to the means. Giving to the kingdom work of God, again, is not to be a back-breaking or a bank-breaking endeavor. Remember what I read from 2 Corinthians. Not that you should be burdened so that others can be eased. We give according to our means to those according to their needs. You're like, well, that sounds like communism. Well, communism is government-enforced, right? Communism is charity at the point of a gun, right? Isn't that kind of what it is? It's like the government comes and says, I'll take what you have so I can give it to this person over here. Within the body of Christ, we freely do that. Okay, uh, I do want to turn to this passage. So Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 40. So in Acts chapter 2, verse 40, this is after Pentecost's sermon, where 3,000 believers came to Christ at Peter's preaching through the work of the Spirit, and they were baptized that day. You see here in chapter 2 of Acts, verse 40, "...and with many other words he, Peter, testified and exhorted them, saying, "'Be saved from this perverse generation.'" Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day there were about 3,000 souls were added to them, that is the disciples. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, in fellowship, in the breaking of bread, and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through, through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common, and sold their possessions and goods, and divided them among all as anyone had need. This that's a work of the spirit, okay? That's not the work of a government enforcing this upon you, or else you will go to jail or be thrown in a gulag or whatever. This is the work of the spirit working in the people of God to give as they had need, uh, as they as they had means to those who had needs. Secondly, back to 1 Corinthians sixteen, and I'm really need, Chris. I have to remember that clock is fast, so I've got a little bit more time than I think. Note also in verse 2, on the first day of the week. This is not you know, vitally important to this passage, but what it does suggest is that Christians met on the first day of the week. right? There's various other passages that talk about this too. Acts 20 verse 7 talks about how they met on the first day of the week, Sunday. The church met on Sunday from the very beginning of the, of the time. But there you also see in verse 2, Let each one of you lay aside, storing up as he may prosper. Again, that's that idea. Those who, according to the means, right? As as you are able to make or earn more, you are then enabled to give more to the work and vice versa. If you're not able to make as much, then you don't give as much. But the temptation to hoard and save everything... um, is a temptation, right? You know, some people think, oh, as I make more, I want to I save it and hoard it and keep it back for a rainy day, right? Uh, Jesus tells a parable in Luke 12. I was going to turn to it, but I'll just kind of go through it. <laughs> I'll just talk about it. There's that parable in Luke 12 in which a man realizes how abundantly his crops have, have grown that year. And he's like, wow, I have so much. I have so much, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to build more bins, more silos, and I'm going to store this up, and then I'm going to sit down, I'm going to get a glass of brandy, and I'm going to smoke a cigar, and I'm going to kick back and say to myself, Self, (laughs) the Lord has blessed me. I can now rest. And then Jesus speaking says, Fool, you do not realize that the Lord has required your life this very day. And then he says, So it is with all who... Who are not free or liberal with the things of God? God blesses you not so you can hoard it. God blesses you so you can be a blessing to others. The lure of wealth is strong. Again, a couple other passages I could turn to, but I won't. Matthew six nineteen through twenty four. You know this one very well, right? You know, don't store up treasures on earth, where moth and rust and thieves can break in and steal. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. And then Jesus will go on and say, you cannot serve two masters. If if money's your master, then God is not your master. Right? Then money becomes your idol. Vice versa, right? Timothy talks about this too, or Paul talks about this to Timothy, I should say, in chapter six. That's where you have the, the love of money as a root of all kinds of evil. Because if you if you're all you're concerned about is wealth, then that will rule your life, is what God is saying there. Giving is as God has prosper, prospered you, I should say, is in a sense a, a cure for that kind of greed, for that kind of, of mentality that oh, I have to hold on to every penny I have. Finally, and let's look at this briefly, quickly. Uh, verses three and four: Giving is entrusted to church leadership, and when I come, whomever you approve by your letters, I will send to bear your gift to Jerusalem. But if it is fitting that I go also, they will go with me. So he says here, when, the gift, uh, when he comes, the gift will be entrusted to whomever the church approves. That word there, approves, means to test or examine or approve. Now, there's some commentators think this, and I think this is accurate, that there may have been some in Corinth who didn't trust Paul with the gift because they didn't like Paul, right? You had those divisions. So you might have some that are like, well, I don't want to give it to Paul, so we'll, we'll give it to these guys, and they will give the gift over. Um, But here again, the principle is that the church leadership is called by God, right? Church officers, ministers, elders, deacons are are called by God. They are approved by the church and entrusted then to handle the resources of the church. And in particular, in our uh, reformed churches or churches who follow a a like, similar um, uh, structure, if you will, um, deacons are the ones who are called to handle the material affairs of the church. I can look at passages for that, but for the sake of time, I will not. So the deacons, then, are the ones entrusted by God to handle the material affairs of the church. Now, again, it doesn't mean that Christians can't give directly to charities. It doesn't mean that as Christians, individual Christians, you cannot give directly to individuals or other Christian ministries that are deserving Right? There are many, 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 many Christian ministries out there, right? Many of them. Many of them are worthy of support and, and should receive our support. But the point I want to make here is that our first priority, our first responsibility is to give to the work of the church. Why? Because it is the church that Jesus has explicitly promised to build. He did not promise to build grace to you. He did not promise to build Ligonier Ministries. He did not promise to build whatever fill-in-the-blank ministry you, you give to, he promised to build the church. As such, then, we should give first and foremost to the church. And then we are to entrust the church, then, to administer those funds properly and rebuke them if they don't. <laughs> right? If, if we mishandled funds, we are to be properly and sorely rebuked. All right, so that's... I'm going to wrap it up here real quick. So here's my wrap-up. Ready to be wrapped up? Here we go. Wrapping it up. Stop saying wrap it up and wrap it up. Okay. Giving is an act of worship. Okay. Philippians 4 talks about this. I'm not going to go into it in detail. But Paul does talk about how giving is a sweet-smelling savor. 1 Corinthians 4.18, where Paul says there, Indeed I have... All and abound, I am full having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well pleasing God. that's sacrifice language from the Old Testament. Paul's like, "Look, I have everything I need because you 've supplied my needs, and that 's a sweet-smelling aroma to God. It is a sacrifice of thanksgiving, if you will, when we offer back to God that with which He has blessed us. And as I've mentioned it several times before, too, it's also a very practical way to show our love for one another. Again, think of the, the parable of the Good Samaritan. What did the Good Samaritan do? Right? He saw someone who had a need, and he met that need, at great financial uh, burden to himself. And then the gospel encouragement is that the basis of all our giving is the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ gave us all. He gave us everything. He held nothing back. Praise God for that, right? If he had held anything back, we would... <laughs> in peril, he held nothing back, and then we then are as recipients of God's indescribable gift, as Paul will say in 2 Corinthians 8, we are to then freely give out of our abundance to meet the needs of others. We are really bumping up on time here. So I'll stop here. Uh, Lord willing, next week, the 4th, we'll finish 1 Corinthians as a whole. All right?